when we were in London last year, um, we stayed with one of the elders of the church of London Baptist Tabernacle Church and um, Chris Laws. And he played the organ for the church. And I think this was the opportunity really that the Lord used to plant the seeds of interest within Sandra to someday play the organ. We had no idea then that we would be here and that she would have the opportunity to learn, thanks to the tutelage of Karen, uh, how to play the organ and thankful for that, for that opportunity. And brethren, I need to begin uh, this morning with a word of confession. Uh, it turns out um, someone came up to me after the service and informed me that I uh, actually referred to the vehicle that I owned as a teenager, my Mustang, as a Chevy Mustang. <laughs> my wife, who does not even know much about cars, caught that. And so I would like to ask for your forgiveness for referring to my Mustang, and especially Joe. I would like to ask for forgiveness for this. The Ford Motor Company, I would like to ask for forgiveness. My Chevy Silverado in the parking lot, I would like to ask for forgiveness of my truck. What a mistake that was. Okay, who didn't catch that? Okay, that's all right. I'll try not to do that again. <laughs> well, brethren, last uh, time, oh, by the way, even my daughter uh, who left for Patterson this morning, she saw my, my sermon notes and she saw the word Chevy Mustang and put the word, uh, put ha, 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 ha. So, yeah, I'm, I'm catching it from everybody. Last Lord's Day, as I told you, I wanted to address for two Sundays matters that I'm going to need to address at the all-church meeting, and they have to do with this concept of the bounds of Christian freedom. And uh, this is a very important concept. Uh, it is something that really um, is crucial in the life and ministry of any church because if we step outside of the bounds of scripture in any way, shape, or form, we can disrupt this concept of the bounds of Christian freedom and can produce extra-biblical standards that can be a burden and an unnecessary burden of guilt upon the children of God. It's a very important subject, and we only introduced it last time. But the first thing that we talked about was we talked about the importance of understanding our eternal freedom in Christ. This is the first place to begin. We were slaves to sin. And now through the merit of Christ, through the work of Christ, we who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we have been set free from that slavery. As Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 36, he said, if therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free Indeed, this is crucial. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm now free, but I'm not free to live however I wish. I'm now free to live for Christ. And that then brought us to the second point, the bounds of Christian freedom. This is where Peter reminds us that we are to act as free men, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16. We're to act as free men, but then he says, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Bond slaves of God. So again, we're free in Christ, but we're free as those who are now bond slaves and servants of Christ. Therefore, the word of God is that which determines the domain of our freedom. And it's a great danger for us to step outside of those bounds of scriptural definition. The third thing that we considered, and this is a very important matter, and I probably could have spent a lot more time on it, but I talked a little bit about the dangers of getting this wrong. And I mentioned Ken Wilson, who wrote a book titled A Letter to My Congregation, where he enjoins pastors and churches to receive into the community of the body of Christ the LGBTQ community with a spirit of indifference to the sin of homosexuality and he calls this idea of the church receiving the LGBTQ community into its fold, he calls it the third way, a third way. 
He says this, and I'm quoting from his book. He says, a third way departs from the open and affirming and the love the sinner and hate the sin approach by regarding the question of whether and how the biblical prohibitions apply in the case of monogamous gay relationships as a disputable matter. And then he says, in, the disputable, in a disputable matter, in the Romans 14 and 15 sense. Last time we talked about Romans 14 and 15 and how it really talks about amoral issues, but he uses that text in order to adjudicate a moral issue. He then says, we can agree to disagree. We can accept each other without approving of each other's moral standing on this or that issue. He then says this, a third way asks people who differ on this question to accept each other as Christ has accepted them without predicating acceptance on affirming the other's lifestyle in this and many other moral questions. So the problem that you have here, brethren, and I hope that this is very clear, Romans 14, where Paul is addressing the vain disputes that were taking place over things like food and drink, he helps the, the Romans to understand this is not something we fight over. We don't fight over food and drink because those are amoral issues. But here, Wilson is importing a moral question into a text that is designed to address amoral issues. And his conclusion is, is that, well, we can just go along and get along. We can just coexist and not actually address the question of the moral conflict regarding homosexuality. You realize, though, when you take this text of Romans 14 and you get to verses 15 and particularly verse 21, you realize that you cannot use this verse for a moral question. Because Paul then says, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. And then he says in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. What is he saying? He's saying food and drink, these are things we can take or leave. These are not things to fight over. And so if it's really going to offend another brother, I'll just refrain from meat or drink or whatever is going to offend him. Well, if you take this text and now stick a moral question into it, you have to ask the question, what am I to give up so as not to offend the homosexual? What am I to give up so as not to offend the transgender? What am I to give up so as not to offend someone who is committing adultery? And by the way, this is one that I came across early on as a baby Christian. What am I to give up to, to the, for, for the sake of those who are committing fornication or abortion? or the abdication of the roles of men and women. Stick any moral argument into Romans 14 and you have an immediate problem. This text is not addressing moral issues. It's addressing amoral issues and we have to keep that in mind. Honestly, any kind of a misuse of this text of scripture is dangerous and we are in a present day and age where this text is in fact being used in order for churches to seek to allow for things like homosexuality, transgenderism, and so forth. It's dangerous, brethren. We have to be mindful of this matter. What it's really doing is it's promoting indifference towards immorality and we should never do that. It's unloving to do that. The bounds of Christian freedom are never to be governed by our own subjective thoughts, our own subjective feelings, or our desire to just go along and get along with others who are engaged in immorality of any kind. Instead, the word of God alone is to determine the bounds of Christian freedom, period. And this is why I mentioned the text of Romans 4.15 last Lord's Day. Where the Apostle Paul says that the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Scripture defines what sin is and what it isn't. We, we don't get to make up laws to fill in the gaps, in a sense. And this is why I mentioned the wisdom of the Second London Baptist Confession last time, which says this of the subject of good works, 
It says, good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not as without warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. Which is another way of saying we don't get to make up our own laws no matter how good our intentions are. Because as soon as we start making up our own standards of morality, we step outside of the bounds of scripture and we violate the principle of Christian liberty in Christ. So this morning, brethren, I'd like to extend this conversation and move it into another very important subject. And I'd like for us to talk about the the subject of family and singleness. First of all, I'd like for us to talk about the bounds of freedom as it relates to the subjects of singleness and marriage. Then I'm going to talk about the bounds of freedom in terms of family life. Those who are married have the privilege of pursuing children and family and and family life. And there are things that govern and regulate that. And there are things that sometimes men create in terms of standards that are outside of scripture that violate that freedom in Christ. And then I'll offer some concluding thoughts at the end. First of all, let's consider this important subject of the bounds of freedom in singleness and marriage. The bounds of freedom in singleness and marriage. One of the earliest challenges that I had in the ministry was that I had to face the onslaught of feminism, especially as it was coming into the church, and particularly the church that I was serving at in my first full-time ministry in Minnesota. There was a strong undercurrent of feminism in the church And I I, I would say this, it wasn't merely just feminism. I always tell people that the problem is is that we have feminism because of effeminism. Meaning, when men fail to be men, they create a vacuum that is oftentimes filled in a manner that is not ordained by God. It's very common to have women enter into roles that really are designed for men, And this is oftentimes the case because men fail to act like men. To borrow the language of the Apostle Paul when he says of the Corinthian church, and drizzis they, act like men. By the way, in today's modern society, that doesn't even mean anything anymore. We've so mutilated the concepts of manhood and womanhood that these terms don't have any meaning in our culture. But this problem oftentimes leads to compromise in churches and seminaries And this is why we have now a preponderance of women pastors. Uh, I I can't tell you how many churches in the entire candidating process over the span of years, how many churches I've come across where I would be looking through their their material and going through their website, and then I would come, come across a woman pastor on their staff, and I would say immediately, well, that's the end of that, you know, it's nice to meet you, and... Uh, there, there was one church years ago that uh, we, all, we went all the way up to having a Zoom call meeting, and I latently discovered that they had women pastors in the church, and so like 20 minutes before the Zoom call, I had to call somebody and say, thanks but no thanks. This is a problem that we have in our society today, and again, I would say to you that the fundamental problem here is with men. Men failing to lead. And I believe that this is one of the reasons why we have transgenderism, the transgender movement in the modern day, is because we have so thoroughly mutilated the concept of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, that we now have a generation that is being raised up with confusion. And I have, they have no idea what it means to be a man or a woman. And brethren, the church should not be a contributor to this confusion, ever. And so this is why in my first ministry from between, I would say, 2000 and 2003, I spent a lot of time researching and writing on the subject of the family and wrote my first book, The First Institution. And one of the things that struck me is that When we talk about marriage and singleness, when you think about it, these are all important subjects, but at the end of the day, everyone in this room, whether married or single, 
we all share the same priority in life, and that is the honor and glory of God. That's it. Now, that may seem a little overly simplistic, but I would say to you, it makes no difference if you're a single person or a married person, the responsibility and privilege of living for the glory of God remains absolutely the same with no distinction. When we take the broader perspective of the pre-fall and post-fall reality of what the Bible teaches, I would say to you that this, again, this priority of the worship and glory of God remains the same. When you go before the fall, life was simple. Life was simple. Adam had the ultimate slim line Bible. He had what? Two commands that were given to him. That's it. He was commanded to cultivate and keep the garden. And he was instructed to enjoy from any tree of the garden, to eat freely from any tree of the garden. But he was told to avoid, to shun the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the Lord said, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall moth to moth, surely die. After this, the Lord instituted marriage. He formed the woman from Adam's side and joined them together as husband and wife. And Adam celebrated the moment in praise to God once they were joined together as one flesh. Simple, beautiful, without the corruption of sin. And then sin entered into the world. And then we ended up with going from a slimline Bible to 66 books in the Bible and nearly 1,200 chapters of description of how we should live as stewards within a sinful, fallen world. And the institution of marriage still, again, had the same priority of glorifying God, but now you have the challenge of indwelling sin, both in the man and in the woman. And again, these, these issues, these realities bring up questions of how we are to be stewards in this fallen world. And so that's why when we go to texts like 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, which was read this morning, we have an interesting spectrum that is given to us regarding singleness and marriage and even marital dissolution. I say marital dissolution because a marriage can be dissolved either by divorce or by death. This is a part of what it means to live in a fallen world. These are not things that would have been considered prior to the fall, but now they're the reality that we have to face after the fall. So now marriage in a sinful world, as I already indicated, it can be dissolved by divorce. Paul talks about the reality of abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7. In Roman society, a free marriage by definition could be formulated as simply as two people getting together and in the presence of witnesses saying, hey, we're married now. So you can imagine that a marriage that can be formulated that quickly can also be dissolved that quickly. So according to Roman law, if you wanted to be done with that spouse, that partner, all you had to do was abandon that spouse and they actually had rules and regulations governing how long you had to be gone. So you couldn't just uh, leave the, your spouse for one night and call it a divorce. You had to be gone for a, a period of time. But by that abandonment, that was the very definition of divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus prohibits divorce except for the case of immorality. There are exceptions. There are realities of the fact that marriages can be dissolved by means of divorce. The problem that existed when Jesus addressed the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19 is that the Pharisees taught, those who were of the school of Hillel, that you could actually divorce your wife pretty much for any reason. And so the Pharisees came to him and said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? According to the school of Hillel, if a, if a woman burnt the man's meal, just that alone was enough to justify divorce. Can you imagine? <laughs> I 
My wife doesn't have the liberty to wake up and say, I'm tired of looking at this guy's bald head. I'm done with him. Okay? We, we can't just divorce one another for any reason. There are bounds to our freedom in Christ. There are bounds that are described and defined by Scripture. And so we have to understand those bounds by means of what is revealed in the Word. Marriage can also be dissolved by means of death. Paul, in describing this in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39, he says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband koimefe sleeps, she is free to be married. Notice the word free. This is her freedom. She is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. There's the boundary. She's free to remarry, but only in the Lord. And free to remarry means she doesn't have to. That's a stewardship question that she would have to resolve before the Lord. Do you see and understand? All of these issues, all of these questions have arisen because we live in a post-fall world. Death, divorce, all of these things we have to address as stewards. How about singleness? I fear that singleness is something that we don't really talk enough about because singleness, as we learn in Scripture, brings about a great number of opportunities and privileges that are not really known by the married person by virtue of the freedom that the single person has. Paul stresses the beauties and the advantages of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this in verse 32. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests, interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, clearly, Paul is not saying that marriage is bad. But what he is saying is, is that there is a difference between being married and being single. And the single person has advantages of freedom that the married person does not have. When Paul wrote this epistle, it was likely 54 or 55 AD, which would have put this epistle about a decade before Nero's official persecution of the Christian church. The church wasn't under really rigorous persecution, but there, were, there was a, an ebb and flow of, of persecution. Um, we could say persecution light at this stage before the Neronian persecution. But Christians were facing opposition from the culture around them. And so Paul says this in verse 26. He says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now, we don't have time to go through the, all the details of this text, but what you're seeing here is a description of the stewardship responsibilities that singles and married people have to confront and address. There are choices that have to be made in order to consider this matter of worshiping God. That's the priority that exists. Again, whether married or single, that priority exists and remains the same. Let me just say this as well. We all enter into this world as singles. If you're married, unless you happen to die on the same day as your spouse, you'll likely leave this world as a single. One concern that I have is, is that the subject of singleness is that it's not really taught adequately in, in the sense of our considering the advantages and blessings that we have as singles. That was a rhetorical we as a married man. The point is, is that, again, one way or the other, we still share the same priority of worship. 
And we should never diminish that priority in the lives of, of, of singles. The single person has the same blessed privilege that I do of being a servant of Christ. As a young Christian, I was stationed in uh, Virginia and uh, <laughs> this was my introduction to the church in America. I was born again and saved in Okinawa, Japan, had no idea what the American church was like, and I spent a lot of time trying to find a solid church. I can't tell you how many churches I came into where they treated single people like as if they were a half a person who needed to find their, their other half. That is terrible. Singleness in that case was treated almost like a disease that had to be cured. This diminished the needed focus on making use of my singleness for the service of Christ, and it, it led me on this chase whereby I was scouting for my bride, whoever she was. Frankly, it took a year of wrestling over this issue by the word and in prayer to realize that I was living my life with a spirit of discontentment. I came to realize that I needed to entrust my life, my future, my servitude to Christ, to, to the Lord, and live with the joy and satisfaction that I had in him. But I got to tell you, that was, a, that was a long wrestling process for me. And the moment I came to understand this principle of embracing and rejoicing in my privilege of being a single, that was a, a moment of repentance over my bad attitude, and it also became a joyful moment in which I just embraced the privilege that I did possess. It was a needful time and moment in my life. And it was not long after that that I ended up attending a church in California where a church that was in a retirement community where I would say that the average age in that church was about 150. That's a guess. But uh, there, of all places, I met my future bride. You'd never guess it. But I'm thankful that God brought me to that point of confession and repentance whereby I could say, Lord, if I die as a single, it is good. If I leave this life as a single, nothing's missing. Whether married or single, I am the Lord's and I'm to serve him. That's my priority. Whatever our station in life is, our calling remains the same the priority and privilege of the worship and exaltation of our God. We're to use our lives as good stewards, prayerfully making decisions in life for the glory of God, understanding that neither marriage nor singleness makes us a better or a lesser person because our sufficiency is found in Christ and in Christ alone. This then brings me to the question of the bounds of freedom in family life. Over the years as a pastor, I have come across a lot of interesting teachings and standards regarding the family, marriage and family. Many of them are good. Some of them are dangerously extra-biblical and create guilt where there should be no guilt. And I've had pressure set on me to, to say things and do things that I knew I couldn't say or do because of scripture. So in my first ministry as an interim pastor, this is before I went to Minnesota, as an interim pastor, I was preaching here in California in uh, Forest Falls, and I had, uh, we, we were just uh, on the throes and the beginning of talking about uh, homeschooling and so forth as, as uh, husband and wife. And, uh, and the church that we were in uh, had a, a pretty healthy group of homeschool families. And I had one man come up to me after a sermon and he said to me, Pastor, when are you going to start preaching homeschooling from the pulpit? 
Basically, he wanted me to tell everybody to homeschool. Well, if you can show me a chapter and verse where I have to say that, I'll do it. But here's the thing. What do I know? What do I know? I know that husbands and wives have to wrestle over the question of the training of their children before God as stewards. It's not for me to preach homeschooling. If that's a decision that that parents come up with on their own before God, then fine. But it's not for me to bear upon their consciences a burden of guilt if they do not do that. Or even questions about, do you send your children to college? In this day and age, those are big questions now because colleges are not what they used to be. Even team sports, my family, they had me invested in playing baseball. I played baseball for nine years as a young person and was so convinced I was going to be a professional baseball player. Um, That really proved to be ruinous to our family because it gave a, a disproportionate amount of attention to me and my sister was kind of on the sideline with that. Again, these are things, I'm not saying team sports are bad, I'm saying parents have to make choices about what they do in the training of their children and it's not for someone like me to bear upon others and say, you know what, you need to be doing this, that, and the other if I don't have a biblical text to back it, we have to allow for the concept of Christian liberty and understand that there are bounds to to Christian freedom. And we need to be careful not to cross those bounds. And even the subject of procreation, brethren, this is an area where I have seen trouble all kinds of problems. You know, I never met Pastor Rob, and I'm sorry that I didn't have the chance to do that. But it was two years prior to my coming here that Pastor Rob, remember, was preaching through Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis. And in April, he preached on Genesis 38 and brought up something rather interesting. He brought up and and dealt with the the sin of Onan. And in that sermon, he refuted the idea that Onan's sin had anything to do with contraception, which I'll get to in just a moment. But it's interesting because at the beginning of the sermon, he made the comment that there were men who advised him not to preach through Genesis 38 because it is... It is a a chapter that is fraught with all kinds of disturbing things and sad things. But I'm thankful that Rob did not take any kind of a shortcut. He preached through the text, and I'm thankful that he did that. One of the things that Genesis 38 reveals is, is that despite the sinfulness of men, the sovereignty of God is never overturned, and that the genealogy of Christ of which Tamar is a member of that genealogy, was established by the decree of God, no matter what men endeavor to do. But remember, in Genesis 38, Judah, the patriarch, took Tamar to be Er's wife. Er was the firstborn of Judah. The text talks about Er being evil, and so the Lord killed him. Judah then commanded Onan, his son, to take Tamar as his wife and perform the act of a leveret marriage to, literally, to brother-in-law Tamar in order to continue the line of heir. But Onan, out of his selfishness and rebellion, refused to do this, and you know the details, and I'll leave it to you to look at that later, but His sin was rebellion against God. Let me read to you what Pastor Rob said regarding this portion of his sermon. He said, this verse, Genesis 38.9, is misused repeatedly. It's misused as a key verse for birth control, and it's misused as a key verse for a lot of other sexual issues that happens to young people and old people. But do you know what this has to do with? What's the sin that Onan is carrying out? He failed to do what was right. He failed to do what God commanded, what his father asked him to do. It's disobedience. 
That's Onan's sin. It has nothing to do with his, the sexual issues. It has to do with disobedience. He did what was in his own best interest. He did what he wanted to do. I, I'm going to tell you, I'm thankful that Pastor Rob addressed that rather touchy issue. Touchy in the sense, again, that Genesis 38 is a difficult text to go through. But I have to tag on to what Pastor Rob said and tell you that even from my earliest years as a Christian, I came across those who would use the sin of Onan and teach the idea of the sin of Onan and connect it to contraception in a very remarkable way. When I was in Virginia, still living in that vortex whereby others were trying to help me to find my, my other half, and I was thinking that I was to spend my days looking for my other half, find my future wife. I actually uh, was uh, set up to start meeting with uh, a young lady uh, who I ended up courting for a little while. And she and her family were deeply invested in the teaching of Bill Gothard. Does anybody know that name, Bill Gothard? This is now going way back into the 80s and early 90s. And by the way, if some of you have seen the Duggar family, uh, there was a program, 19 Kids and Counting, if, if you know anything about that. I'm not a, I don't watch a lot of TV, but uh, there was a little bit of insight given concerning the history of Gothard and his teaching through that. A lot of the teaching that I heard as I was getting to know the, this family and this, this young lady with her, with, with the family, as I was getting to know the teaching of Gothard, there were plenty of things that seemed to be just fine, but then there were some of the oddities of the teaching that came with it. And Gothard took this view that Rob is referring to, this kind of a hard line against the use of contraceptives, arguing that any use of contraceptives was a violation of the Sixth Commandment, the Sixth Commandment being the commandment prohibiting murder. Now, Gothard didn't teach that it was literal murder, but he was saying, he would say that it's of the same category as murder. And so they would refer to this as onanism. According to Gothard and all the followers of Gothard, they considered any kind of family planning as being onanism, the sin of onanism. Again, this would be seen as being a violation of the sixth commandment. As a young believer hearing this, it didn't take long for me to realize this is problematic. This is taking a text of scripture, as Pastor Rob said, and misusing it, misapplying it, and doing it in a way that would put a burden of guilt on the people of God simply for trying to be good stewards in the matter of planning and timing a family. And I saw the evidence of how this was destructive. Even though I was only in Virginia for a couple of years, the families that I knew, the churches that I was in association with at the time, I saw what this was doing to churches, to people, to families. Families who were simply trying to plan the timing and size of their families, understanding that God is sovereign over all, were being accused falsely of violating the sixth commandment. And I got to say, this was the beginning of the end of my connection with this young lady and her family because I saw that this is a very problematic teaching. I offer this as an example, brethren, and a warning regarding the dangers of creating lawful standards for the family that are not justified by Scripture. Pastor Rob was right. Onanism, or the concept of onanism, is a misuse of scripture. By the way, I would not have come here if I thought for a second that this was here in this church, whether in, in you know, especially in the leadership, I would have never have come here. I would have probably, if I was talking to the search committee and if this came out, you know what I would have said? I would have said, so it was nice meeting you and I think we're done. I probably would have offered some warning and some counsel about how dangerous this is before doing so. But brethren, I would never have come here if I imagined that this teaching were here. Because again, I've seen what this does to churches. It isn't pretty. It places a false burden of guilt on those who seek to be good and careful stewards concerning the blessings of children. 
And I would say that this teaching, though Gothardism is pretty much gone, you only find this view now within conservative Catholic churches, uh, some, some, some uh, Presbyterians, very small communities within Presbyterianism, and the Amish community. Um, so it's really not something that even comes up on my radar anymore, and I would say that since my earliest years as a Christian, I haven't seen it for decades. But the key principle is this, and this really gets to the question of the bounds of Christian freedom. Husbands and wives are called to pursue conscientious stewardship within their marriages for the purpose of glorifying Christ. And this includes their personal choices regarding procreation. Though the use of abortifacients, that is anything that would actually kill a fetus, though the use of abortifacients is prohibited by scripture, Genesis 9-6 and other texts, it remains an area of freedom for couples to pursue the timing and size of their families, but they must remember that God's sovereignty prevails. God's sovereignty prevails over the plans of mere mortals. As the proverb says, Proverbs 16:9, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You know, by the standard of onanism, I would be disqualified to serve in the ministry. Sandra and I made the choice to, and I use the word endeavor because we endeavored to wait for eight years to have our first child. I use the word endeavor because we're not in control, we're not in command. God could have intervened and given us a child any time during that time. We would have celebrated and rejoiced the provision of God and moved on from there. But we endeavored to wait for eight years so that Sandra could be a worker in the home and give her time, attention, and energy to, to the children as the Lord would provide. But again, by the standard of onanism, I would be disqualified. And that's how serious this is. This is why I brought up last week the fact that the problem of creating and crafting standards, lawful standards that are outside of scripture, that this is a dangerous thing. Where there is no law, neither is there violation. And not having a clear standard or law against the concept of family planning Men have to create their own standards, and this is dangerous. Let me offer some concluding thoughts. I want to underscore and repeat this matter. Singleness is a blessing. If you're struggling with that, let me just repeat it again. Singleness is a blessing. It is a blessed opportunity to give one's time and attention to the Lord. And I would say to you, give it all you've got. Use that freedom for the glory of God. And I would say this, and I'm not saying this because I think that there's some issue or problem here in this body, but we need to be careful to honor those who seek to be good stewards as singles. Rather than treating them like a half a human being who needs to find their other half, we should honor them in the station of life that God has called them to. Over the years, I've seen too many marriages that have been the product of societal pressure. People trying to get people to get together. By the way, had I married that young lady back in Virginia, I don't know. The Lord can always intervene and, 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 and make it work, but uh, I, I think there might have been some problems. And as a pastor, I've got to tell you, I've counseled couples who were married out of a sense of pressure from others. It's just not a good way to begin a marriage. You should marry your best friend because you believe that God is calling you to do that, not because others are telling you to do that. If marriage is in your future, that's up to the Almighty. Trusting his sovereignty mean, means resting in his hands and serving him with gladness and joy as his precious sons and daughters. But don't let anyone rob you of that joy. To the married, please remember that your marriage at its best should offer to others a glimpse of the beauty of Christ and his union with his bride, the church.
Putting it another way, your marriage is not about you. It's about him. And like the single, you need to be invested in this priority and privilege of honoring and serving Christ. You need to embrace your stewardship of marriage as long as the Lord has ordained you to be married. And again, be a good and faithful and wise steward of that provision. In Matthew chapter 22, remember this remarkable moment when the Sadducees were questioning Jesus and they came up to him and they asked the question, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Leverett marriage. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, and so also the second and the third, down to the seventh. The last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Brethren, what's your future? For those of you who are married, your future is being wed to Christ, to the bridegroom of the church. That's it. There will be no marriage in heaven beyond that. And marriages that exist in this world have the design of heralding and exalting that eternal marriage that will have no end. Our stewardship in this life, whether married or single, remains the same. Our stewardship is to live for the glory of the one who redeemed us, knowing that we have been bought with a price, therefore we are to glorify God with our body. Martin Rinkhart was a man who served at a time, one of the darkest times in church history, and who wrote a remarkable hymn, hymn number 556, Now Thank We All Our God. I say that Rinkhart ministered during a, a very difficult time, a very dark time, because he served as a minister in the body of Christ during the Thirty Years' War, which is considered by historians perhaps the darkest period in Europe's history in terms of the death toll by means of warfare and disease. It is said of Rinkhart that he performed as many as 40 to 50 funerals a day. Can you imagine this? Imagine living in a world where there's so much death and destruction that you're occupying your time in that manner of saying goodbye to loved ones 40 to 50 funerals a day. You know what? I do one funeral and I'm exhausted because it is an emotional moment, but this is incomprehensible. And not only this, but brethren, one of these funerals was for his own bride. And at the moment of her passing, he became a single man again. But he did not surrender his privilege of calling in terms of serving and worshiping Christ. How else could a man write a hymn about having gratitude and thanksgiving for God? Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Whether married or single, we're to live for the glory of God and to do so with hearts of thanksgiving. Let's stand together and close our time with the singing of this hymn.
Heavenly Father, may we live out our lives with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. Whether single or married, may we live out our lives as those who have been freed. Freed in Christ. Freed from the bondage and slavery of sin. Free not to live for ourselves, but for him who redeemed us by his own shed blood to live as bond slaves of God, bond slaves who are governed and ruled by your word, whereby your commandments are not burdensome, but they are our joy. Oh Lord, increase our sense of gratitude, our thanksgiving for our redemption and our privilege to serve you no matter what our station in life is. Father, thank you for the privileges of looking at your words, setting the scriptures together. We pray that you would bless the remainder of our day so that in all things as your people, we would give you honor and glory for everything. We ask and pray and petition all these things in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ.